Thanks, Natalie. If you want to leave your Bibles open and pull out your outlines, you'll find an outline in there that will help us get through uh, this part of the God's Word and understand what that means for us. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we raised the issue of how we respond to the current laws around abortion uh, that are coming through Parliament and what we do there. Next week, we'll be exploring that in a little bit more depth. Uh, it'll only be a small section, uh, but just letting you know that that's coming up and we'll give you some ideas then about how we can respond within the timeline that we're able to do that. We've been pulling some things together. So um, look forward to thinking through that together and thinking about how we um, need to stand up in our world to speak God's Word into it. Why don't we pray together as we come and understand what God has said to us here in His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for this day. We thank You that You have called us together and You've spoken Your Word to us as we've just heard it read. We're so thankful that You are the God who speaks and who speaks into our world and shapes the way we need to view it. And so we ask today that by Your Spirit and and through this Word that You would speak. You'd keep shaping and molding us to be people who are in the likeness of your Son. Pray this in His name. Amen. Over the past uh, couple of months, there's been a number of Christian leaders who have significantly expressed a lack of confidence in the Christian faith. Uh, they've stood up and said, look, I actually don't think following Jesus is the way I want to go forward anymore. Joshua Harris, the, the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye, a role model for so many people about how to put God first in dating relationships, has left his wife and left his faith. It says he's exploring a new way forward, a, a new way of hope. Another guy by the name of Marty Harris, who you may not, sorry, Marty Simpson, who, who you may not know, but he, he wrote the lyrics for the song Saviour King that we sing, has done the same thing. Both expressed um, that they don't trust in the God of the Bible, nor the church that they've been a part of and have left. Marty Sampson hasn't walked away from his wife, but he has walked away from his church. They've come to places where they think that there's something better than the hope they once shared. Something better than the Word of God to trust in, to rely in, to give them security and hope. And it raises the question for us today, where is our security? What is your hope? What gives you the confidence to live? Life throws so many competing places of stability and security at us. Career and family, bank balance, wisdom, uh, life lived to the full. They're all things that we run to and, and seek pleasure from and security in. But as we get to this part of the Bible, as Isaiah has been hammering home week after week after week, we get another window into what we are like. Because we get a window into the hearts of the people of Israel. And as we look through this window, we see the Word of God peel back the layers. Not only on a people who lived 700 years before Jesus, but on the compelling forces of security and dependence that you and I feel drawn to today. Isaiah 28, like much of Isaiah, is a warning and a window. A warning for people like you and me, who are hell-bent on rejecting the Word of God A window into our hearts to where you and I place our hope and security. And it shows us a window into a surer, stronger, more solid foundation. As we start the beginning of chapter 28, we read these words. Woe to the majestic crown of Ephraim's drunkards and to the fading flower of its beautiful splendor, which is on the summit above the rich valley. Woe to those overcome with wine. 
And you need your geography again to understand what's going on. Ephraim is the northern part of Israel, the, the tribes that went away and that set up a separate um, altar to God and a, and a high place to God, rather than doing what God had said. And their capital in Ephraim was Samaria. Samaria was their city of cities. It was their Auckland. Sorry if you're from somewhere else. You know, Auckland is the city of New Zealand, isn't it? It's the only one, right? It was, it was the place where they went, here is our hope. You know, here is our dream. It was a beautiful city. It was situated at the head of this fertile valley, which looked out across the Mediterranean Sea. It was a lovely place and it was their pride and joy. But now God's word had come to God's people and warned them of finding their confidence in anything other than him. His word had been spoken to warn them of the perils of rejecting the true and living God. But to those that knew Ephraim and Samaria, to those that knew of its glory and goodness as a nation and as a place, they had no need for confidence in God. I mean, who needs God when you've got Auckland, right? Who needs God when we're in this great metropolitan city of so many nations and cultures coming together and great food and transport, maybe? You know, and so their confidence was in Samaria. And what they were doing was trusting in their own strength. It's point number one, if you're following along. They were trusting in their own strength. Now, growing up, I was never the fastest kid in my class. I was never the kid that was picked first to jump into the sports team. I was never the strongest or the tallest. But this little thing that I held on to all the way through primary school and high school was this. I'd grown up riding motorbikes, and I was the best motorbike rider that I knew. And for some reason, that gave me confidence in life. I don't know why. It just did. You know, when I got in trouble with a teacher or in trouble with a principal or some kind of kid had some issue with me and their parents came to school and complained about me, all those things happened often. I think it's fine because I'm a better motorbike rider than you. <laughs> I, seriously, I did. It's weird. You laugh at it. It sounds stupid. But we all do it. We all have these little secret superpowers, I call them. <laughs> These little things that we hold underneath that we evaluate against everything else and we kind of raise above every other kind of strength that we have and they become for us like an unspoken superpower. The place where we find our security and strength, it's all right. You know, I've, I've got a really good head of hair. Or, well, it's okay. You know, I'm really good at this thing or I'm really good at that or do you know who my father is? We have all these kind of things that can creep into our lives and that's where we find our security whenever we face hardship and battle. Now, what is your super strength? Where do you do that? Because we all do. For Israel, it was Samaria. Such a great city. We don't need any help. We don't need God. We have Samaria. We have this place. We're here. We have no concern for the word of the Lord. No concern for the enemies God has pointed out. Their attitude, Israel's attitude, is a misplaced one. Of eat, drink, and be merry. Bottoms up. We're in this great city of celebration. Live it up. Drink it up. It doesn't matter. And that's literally what they do. They drink to their heart's content. Their leaders have gone awry. They, they don't really care about God's word. They are just living it up, living the high life, coming home and saying on the end of the weekend, wasn't it great? I can't remember what I did Friday night or Saturday night. But as Isaiah speaks into their world, he shows them that trust in anything other than the true and living God is misplaced and futile. It's stupid. God will destroy their confidence. Verse 2, he describes it like a storm sweeping through. Verse 3, like trampling the drunkards underfoot. Verse 4, like stripping the crown of splendor from Samaria to being a barren wasteland. 
God's like, how foolish to find your security in Samaria rather than the one who created it. That's their future. And the question we've got to ask at this point is, is why would God do this? Why would he strip this nation away? Well, he does it so that they might see that the true splendor is not Samaria, but the God who made it. Look at verse 5. On that day, the Lord of armies will become a crown of beauty and a diadem, a tiara of splendor to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment and strength to those who repeal attacks at the city gate. God's saying, I'm going to strip you bare until you see I am God and you are not. I am your only hope, your only strength. Come and trust me. All that will be left for Ephraim, for Israel, will be this testimony that God said it would happen and it did. And that trusting in your own strength is not enough. How often do you put confidence in things, in the glories of the city that we live in, our homes, our, our democracy, or, or maybe the comfort of nature, of, of the wilderness, or our secret superpower, whatever it is? God is making clear to Israel that He Himself will lay bare all these things, they will all come to nothing. And he's making clear to us today to look beyond the created things to the creator who made them. Look beyond ourselves to the God who has spoken and says, trust in me. But Israel's security wasn't just their own perceived strength as a nation. They built their security on their own wisdom, which is point two, trusting our own wisdom. Look at verse 9 of chapter 28. Who is he trying to teach? Who is he trying to instruct? Infants just weaned from milk? Babies removed from the breast? It's kind of an odd bit as you, as you get through this part. You're like, who's talking at this point? Well, it's actually Israel. And they're speaking to Isaiah, and because of that, to God, basically saying, who do you think you are, Isaiah? Speaking to us like there's something that we don't know about God. You're talking to me like a baby. You're talking to us like babies. We know what we're doing. We're loving it. Life is great. We're drinking up. We're eating up. We're living in this city. We don't care about the nations around us. How dare you talk to us like infants? Do you know who we are? They think they don't need to be taught. And in verse 10, there's this weird line, law after law after law after line after line. And you're like, what is that? Translators generally say that basically we don't know what that is. It's some sort of babble. And they're kind of mocking Isaiah to say, you're speaking like a baby. It's like goo goo gaga, goo goo gaga. So Isaiah, you're speaking to us and we're just hearing this baby talk. We're way above that. We're so much more wise. We don't need to hear your words or the words of the God you purport to represent. As you think about it, that whole approach to God is something that, well, our society so often falls into, doesn't it? People come along and go, it's so ridiculous, so stupid that you would need to trust in the word of this God you believe in. We're wiser now. We're scientific. We can understand the way the human body is knit together. We can understand how far away stars are and planets. And we know the earth is round, not flat. And, you know, we've got so much more today. We don't need God's view. Sure, it might have been helpful for a people back in a time, but we are so wise. Listen to the words of Richard Dawkins. I'll quote him. He's on the screen. 
What I can't understand is why you can't see the extraordinary beauty of the idea that life started from nothing. That's such, that is such a staggering, elegant, beautiful thing. Why would you want to clutter it up with something so messy as God? In other words, I know better than what God says. I've looked at the world. I've been to Oxford. I'm an Oxford professor of mathematics. I know what is going on here. I don't need God's word to come to me. How often do you hear that view purported by the media, by our friends, by our family, look down their noses at the word of God? We so often hear people justify their denial of God because they can't understand the need for God. I live in a city that provides me with everything. I've got such wisdom. We've got such strength. Education is the way forward. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't make logical sense. He does make sense. Even more than that, he's revealed himself throughout history. And so he's he's shown that he has spoken and, and done what he said he would do. I mean, this part of Isaiah is a clear witness to that fact. What God said would happen, happened. Israel were wiped out by the Assyrians, Judah by the Babylonians after this point. And you keep seeing time after time what God promises will happen, happens. But not only that, he stepped into the world in the person of Jesus. And he made himself known and pointed us to the fact that Jesus was God and there is life after death and that he would die and rise again. That's exactly what he did. Oh, It's not that we're shutting our eyes to the evidence of God. No, no, we're having our eyes very much opened to who he is and what he's done. But the world around us says That's so stupid. Why would you messy up your view of the beauty of life starting from nothing with the idea that there is a God? But here's the thing. Sometimes Christians, like you and me, do exactly the same thing. We go, God didn't really mean that when he says it in his word. It just seems to be such a different view of the world, the way that God talks about it there. And there are different people in a different time and a different place. We can't apply the Bible directly to us in this way. The idea of men and women women being equal but different, that's so archaic. We're so beyond that now. Come on, we live in the 21st century. This idea of same-sex marriage, what's really wrong with it? Is it really really that bad? Is, Is God's word really right here? Or the idea that God's in complete control of everything. Like maybe, maybe in the first century world they thought that, but today, come on, how can God be in control of so many things? Do I really think he's in control? Do I really think that his responsibility is, is there over all and I have responsibility and the two work together? Even though God's word says God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together, and I kind of want to push it away and go one or the other. Or we hear the idea that God is just as glorified in his judgment as he is in his salvation. And we say, no, that can't be right. God would be more glorified if more people were saved. All these things we can so easily slip into a point of trusting our own wisdom. Rather than the wisdom of the true and living God. Letting the word of God shape the way we view his world. Rather than what I see and feel and think. Where is it for you? Where do you doubt the word of God and begin to think that you know better? I'll tell you where it is for me often. It's a temptation to think that I can organize and strategize my way forward apart from the work of God. We are responsible for our actions and what we do. And I so often find myself first jumping into, okay, what's the best way forward given where we are and what to do? Forgetting that God is in control. And he's the one that 
plans and purposes, all things, and forgetting that I need to come to him in prayer first. So often think that my wisdom will get us through rather than depending on the true and living God. Where is it for you that your wisdom trumps your trust in God? So in verse 11 of Isaiah 28, God judges them. And he speaks of the way he will judge them. You heard my word in a language you could understand when I spoke to you. Now you think that I'm just speaking like a baby to you. I'm giving you babble. You think this stuff is so below you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak to you in words you don't understand. And you won't be able to come to me. Verse 11. God will speak to this people with stammering speech and in a foreign language. That's code for, I'm going to send foreign nations amongst you. You won't understand what they're saying. And then they will speak and they will invade. Because they will wipe you out. We kind of don't understand this. Today we think when we hear a multitude of different languages spoken, we celebrate it. And we celebrate it as a taste of what heaven will be from people from every tribe, language, people and nation gathered around the throne. We celebrate it in society with the different cultures coming together. But... At this age, if you've got people amongst you who speak another language, you're being invaded. They're coming in not to be like, oh, hey, you know, I like, I like your food, let's share. They come in to say, I want your families and your houses and I'm going to kill you. And that's what God is saying will happen. You think this word that I speak is just infantile and babble? I will send other nations in to wipe you out and they will speak and you won't understand because you have rejected the word of God by your own wisdom. It's helpful to note that Paul quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about the way that tongues should be translated if they're going to be spoken of in the church. And the idea that speaking in another language, in another tongue in the church is stupidity because in Isaiah, that's the way God will judge by sending other nations in. Have a look, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20. Write it down, check it out later. But brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Instead, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. It's written in the law, by people with strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Yet not even in this way will they listen to me. There's the quote, Isaiah 28. So then tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but believers. So if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and unbelievers or uninformed people enter, will they not say you've lost your minds? Like, (laughs) Why are you speaking other languages? This is like judgment on you. You don't understand this. I can't understand it. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person enters, he'll be convicted by all. He'll be called to account by all. The secret of his heart are disclosed... And in this way, he will fall down with his face to the ground and worship God, declaring God is really among you. Paul quotes it, showing that it's a sign of judgment. These other languages spoken amongst them is a sign of God judging them, of people not understanding. And if you don't get it, it's God's judgment on them. It's a helpful principle behind all of this as a side note that everything we do as a church when we gather together needs to be intelligible. We need to make sure we don't just spew forth our wisdom by using big theological words and kind of make others feel like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. How are they going to understand the great riches of who God is and what he's done? That doesn't mean we don't explain our larger words and biblical concepts that are there. We absolutely should. 
But Christian jargon just pumps up and inflates our own wisdom and helps us to go, look at what I can say. I can use these big words that make me look special. But they never actually get passed into our hearts. They don't communicate to anyone who doesn't know what that word means. But to speak in a way that others can understand brings life. And to speak in a way they can't brings judgment. And that's exactly what God has done to Israel or will do. They think they are wise and that God's word is like childish babble. So he'll send other nations amongst them in judgment. Friends, please hear the importance here of finding our security and hope not in our own inflated wisdom, but in the word of God made clear. If you don't understand something at church or in a connect group, come and ask me. Come up the front and chat. I'll be down the front. Uh, ask the person that, that's there, what, what did that mean? Or some word in a song. Uh, we work really hard with all of our songs to make sure that there are words that are understood. We try and take out the these and thous because no one speaks in Elizabethan language anymore. Uh, it's, it's not helpful. Well, why am I saying, why are we suddenly singing in Elizabethan English? I don't understand that. Uh, we try and take out bigger concepts or, or um, words that are just kind of jargon words so we can point people to what they mean. And the same thing with church. We, we, all that we do here, we're trying to make it accessible for others. So if there's something that you don't get or you miss, ask, please, come and talk to us. We're working really hard to see that happen. And maybe if you want to understand more and grow more, make sure you're going along to a connect group where you can be real, where you can ask what things mean. And more than that, you can share what's going on in your life. One of the problems with Israel here at this point is that they think they've got it sorted. They think they've got their wisdom and I don't need any other word from God. And sometimes I feel like I've been in the position where I don't want wisdom from others. I don't know if you've ever felt yourself going, I don't really want to go to Connect Group. I don't want to think through together what God's Word is saying to us. Or maybe you go along to Connect Group to spout out the wisdom you've got and the big theological words you have rather than letting God's Word shape and mold the way you live. We need to be a people who are standing alongside one another and applying the Word of God in a loving way, helpfully to one another, that, that hits our hearts, not just knowing what the text says, but living in response to it, what it says, or understanding it clearly and helpfully is super important. But if we don't respond rightly to it, we're just saying, well, actually, I don't, I don't need to know this, or I don't need to let it affect my life. Friends, we need one another to be speaking into our lives and applying the word of God. If you can't get to a connect group, chat to me or someone about catching up one-on-one -on -one with someone each week. Letting the word of God shape and mold our lives is what we need to do. Do not think too highly of our own wisdom. But sit under the word of God. To ignore the wisdom of God or to think his word is beneath you is to walk headfirst into the judgment of God. And that's exactly what Israel did. The third way they undermine their trust in God is by making deals with other nations rather than trusting in the word of God. It's point number three, trusting in man-made alliances. Look at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. For you said, we've made a covenant with death and an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, it will not touch us. Because we will have made falsehood our refuge and have hidden behind treachery. He's mocking them. Isaiah is mocking 
Israel and Jerusalem, not only do you trust in your own strengths and cities, not only do you trust in your own wisdom more than God's wisdom, you think the nations around you will provide more security than the true and living God. You've made alliances with the surrounding nations that you think will save you, and all you've done is made a covenant with death. You set up an appointment in your diary to say, yeah, I'll, I'll jump into bed with these people, these other nations. I'll find my security there in these alliances. And when they come home, they will wipe you out because I am the God over all and you have not trusted in me. They will not protect you. They will smash you. How often do you seek the protection and security and comfort that God offers us in something or someone other than God? It might not be alliances with other nations, but perhaps a hundred small compromises. You start a relationship with someone that clearly the Bible says we ought not to marry. You compromise meeting together with God's people just for a time, just while I'm in this busy stage of life. I can't get along to stuff and I really just need to press into my job and I'm not going to be able to meet at all with God's people. And You make small decisions, alliances, groupings. I'll stand with work rather than... God's people. I'll stand with this particular issue or, or this desire to, to kind of build up a, a nest egg in my retirement. Then in my retirement, I'll cut back and give God time then. We make decisions to find our comfort, our security, and our treasure in the created things rather than the creator. Now, each of these decisions, they're only slight But each time we place our satisfaction and security in something other than God's certain word, we drift closer and closer to having no satisfaction at all on the day that Jesus returns. We make alliances with everyone except God. And every day we're faced with a challenge of who we're going to listen to. At work, will I stand for the truth of Jesus? Will I speak up in a helpful and loving and tactful way, but will I stand firm in him? Will I give in to the pressures of the world around me? Will I show my alliances with my work rather than my God? At home, when it's more private, will we live out the Christian life when others aren't looking and what we do with our eyes and what we we do with our lives and where we spend our money? Will we keep sacrificing comfort now for the growth of the kingdom or will we spend our money on comfort now and Maybe just look for the kingdom later. The way we we spend our time, each decision is a decision to live in line with the word of God or against the word of God. It's a decision to find security in God's word or despite God's word. Question for us, for me, for you is, who will you trust? Who will you trust? Especially when it costs Where will you find your security? Friends, the message of Isaiah is, let go of your false hopes. Let go of the things that will not deliver, the comfort and security and strength in the world around us, our own wisdom, in forming alliances with all sorts of different people and trust in God. God says, come to me and I will give you rest. But in verse 16, Isaiah gives a hint of that rest to come. A hint of God's solution to this problem of humanity who just do not come back to him. We get a a hint 
of something spoken in Isaiah 28 that now, this side of Jesus' return, now with the New Testament, we have absolute clarity on. Come with me, 28 verse 16. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Again, it's like this ray of light, of hope. A certain and secure and sure foundation within which to build my hope and security. And we know now what that cornerstone is. As they were looking forward to who who or what that cornerstone would be in Zion, in Jerusalem, in that place that God would lay, whatever it was, we now know who that is. We now see with more clarity. We now have a hope that is so much more certain and clear. We know what that is because the New Testament writers tell us. They tell us who this cornerstone is. And it's a great principle as we come to parts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that we let the New Testament interpret the Old. So if um, the New Testament is God's Word, if it's Scripture, and as the New Testament writers are writing down what God's Word is, and they're writing that down for us, and we'd see that as Scripture, and if they then interpret the Old Testament, then we get to see what God actually meant, because both is God speaking. The New Testament is God speaking to us, and the Old Testament was God speaking to us, and the New Testament then interprets what God said in the Old. It's God on God. And so we get to see with even more clarity now what God said then, what he was actually pointing forward to. You've got to let your New Testament interpret your Old Testament. Not just make stuff up and think that's what the New Testament's saying, but when the New Testament writers explain it, go, well, this is what it meant because it's Scripture. And what we see is that while the Old Testament had implications and application for its original hearers, it was actually in its entirety a shadow pointing forward to a bigger, clearer reality, whose name is Jesus. 1 Peter 2 verse 4, listen to what Peter says. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honoured by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honoured cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. What Isaiah spoke of that God would do in the future, we now have Christ alone, our cornerstone, the one on whom if we trust in him, our sin is forgiven, our debt is paid. He is the leader who lived rightly and righteously. He's the one who did what the leaders of Israel could never do and serve God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. He's the one who died in our place and rose again and will come back to judge the living and the dead. And he's the one for whom if we put our trust in him, if we put our life in him, if we place our hope and security and strength on what he has done at the cross, we will never be put to shame. What a hope. What a certainty we have because of Jesus. God the Son become flesh. This is what John the Baptist says about Jesus in John 3.36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, our hope is Jesus. He is your only hope and mine.
as we stumble and fall throughout life and find ourselves placing our hope and security in so many things that will not deliver, we need to be reminded, look to Jesus. The Word of God become flesh. God with us. He's died my death. He's paid the price. He's faced the wrath of God, the judgment of God that I deserve. And he's conquered death and risen again. What a joy it is to know Jesus has died for us. That he is our hope. Do you get this? The people of the Old Testament long for the day to know with clarity when that was. And we now have it. What confidence we can have to live God's way in the world around us. To trust him no matter what happens. No matter what has gone on. Because our future is secure. But I need to also tell you this cornerstone has another function. The very next verse in 1 Peter 2 says this. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. A stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Paul's taking Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 and pulling these two pictures together to say that cornerstone in whom you need to place your hope will also cause you to stumble if you reject him. To think that he isn't good enough or he's not enough or to say, oh, Jesus, you know, he's a great moral teacher and to push him to the side or he's got some good moral lessons, but he's, he's not God the Son, he's not the one that I'm living for, will cause you and I to stumble. So the message of 1 Peter and of Isaiah is come to the cornerstone, trust in him. But if you don't, he will cause you to stumble for he is the one that will... Come back and judge the living and the dead. And for those of us that have placed our hope in anything other than him, well, there can be no forgiveness. Because no one else has died in our place. Our wisdom, our security, our strength, they're not going to save us. God uses Jesus as the rock that trips over so much of Israel. You see it in Romans 9 as well, where, where Israel stumble over this Jesus. They don't trust him as God's promised king and... So God judges them. They get scattered. Israel falls. And God uses the Gentiles, the non-Christians, who, who then, as the gospel goes out to the world, he uses them to make the Jews jealous, to make them come back and see that Jesus is the cornerstone. Friends, Jesus is the center of our hope and security. And if we reject him, here's a picture of the way Isaiah Paints our future. Verse 17 of chapter 28. Hail will sweep away the false refuge, and water will flood your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be dissolved, and your agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. Friends, given how I've treated God, that is what I deserve. And it's what you deserve too. And if we reject the cornerstone, the only true hope, that is our future. But if we come to him, if we trust him, if we take him at his word, if we recognize that living his way is the right way and what is to come in the future is, is secure because of what he has done, then our salvation is secure. Friends, you cannot lose if you put your trust in Jesus. And you cannot win if you don't. You cannot lose if you put 
your trust in Jesus. And you cannot win if you don't. But where is your confidence? What are you living for? How are you letting the word of God shape how you live day by day? Are you just learning the words and trusting in wisdom? How will you model to those around you, your family? Will you model to your kids that Jesus is everything? He is my cornerstone and hope. Will you bring them to church week after week and teach them that that is your hope when things are going well and when things are going bad, that Jesus is secure? Will that be the way you live? When you bring your kids to youth and encourage them to say, you need to be involved with other Christians who will build you up and open God's word like they did with Carrie. Will you model to those around you by the way you use your money, that my hope is in heaven? Will you, will you feel the sacrifice of going, I'm not going to enjoy all these massive, amazing holidays because I'm putting my funds into the holiday that lasts forever and seeing as many people there as possible in Christ, sacrificially living for the kingdom? Will you make your allegiance with Jesus rather than your work? or your family reputation, or your own reputation, or your own comfort? Will you say, I trust in Jesus and the cornerstone, the one who has died for me? Will he be the center of everything you do? Friends, Isaiah shows us clearly that you cannot lose if you put your trust in the cornerstone who is Jesus. And you cannot win if you don't. Let's pray. Lord God, we keep being reminded of the realities of what we are like as people. How when we have your true and certain hope before us, we just consistently turn back and trust ourselves or other things in this world. We're sorry for the way that we have acted. We're sorry for the times that we place our hope in something other than you. By this word today and by your spirit, please break through our calloused hearts and show us where we slip into these ways. For those of us today, Lord, that have come face to face with you for the first time or have heard you saying, come, or feel like you were saying to them today, you need to come to me. Help us to trust you, to put our faith in you. And for those of us that have been serving you for years, Help us to hear the warning of the window into our hearts that we might not let anything or anyone creep into the place of Jesus, our cornerstone. Help us to live for you. We are so thankful for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.